The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, watch out for the black helicopters. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 343 with guest Jeffrey Richter, recorded live Monday, May 5th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who measures the effects of his favorite chili with the Richter scale, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here for your .NET listening pleasure with Richard Campbell, of course. Hi, Richard. How are you, sir? You know, I'm doing pretty good. Cool. I'm doing pretty good. We've had a nice little flurry of conferences lately. Yeah, it's been fun, of course. Yeah, coming into tech ed now, they, you know, the days are counting down. Dev Teach was great. I flew in and flew out in pure rock star fashion. Total rock star that show. I've never I was done there the that. whole time. I've never done that before. Just, no, it was usually me that does that, that comes yeah. in, does the show, flies out. Just time, you know, timing was tight. That's all. That's the way it but works. It, yeah, it, it did work. And you'll hear that show coming up, uh, the future of .NET panel. Which actually turned into a, well, you'll just have to wait till hear it. Yeah. That'll yeah. be next Thursday or something, right? Something like that. Well, Richard, let's get right into Better Know Framework. All right, what do you got? Well, as you know, this is uh, Better Know Framework. This is a segment that I've been doing for a while where, by osmosis, you're going to learn about the little pieces of the .NET framework. There's millions of them to know. And uh, not in depth, but just a little. These are pointers. So that you can go look in the documentation if you're so curious. Today I'm going to talk about uh, the System.io stream, and uh, I'm going to spend a few shows talking about the System.io stream because it's a real fundamental class that, uh, that you can use for a lot of different things. Of course, reading and writing to files is the biggest use of them. Cool. And uh, you know, I know it's sort of old hat, and and anybody worth their weight in salt as a .NET developer probably already knows about streams. But I thought, you know, we've never really talked about it, so let's do that. All right. So the stream, of course, if you've done any VBA programming or, or ASP programming, you probably understand the whole stream idea where you have a stream that uh, is, a, is an object that you use to read and write to and from some sort of stream of data, usually a file. Uh, but it could be anything. You can have a network stream. You could have a memory stream. Um, but uh, today I want to talk about the synchronized method, and the synchronized method returns a thread-safe wrapper around the specified stream object. So stream.synchronize, cool. and then you pass in a stream, and it returns a nice wrapper for you. What that means is that any uh, uh, calls that are going to be made to that stream are only going to happen on one thread, so they'll be thread-safe. Yes. So it... Uh, Restricts access to it for multiple threads. And that's really important if you're doing some multi-threading stuff. Now, the stream object also has uh, methods for doing the uh, for using the .NET asynchronous model it built right into it, and that's what we're going to talk about next time. There you go. So that's your framework tip for the day. Richard, you got an email for us? I do indeed. 
And this one is comments on show 341, which was our 64-bit show, if you recall. That's right. And we got a lot of traction on that. I didn't know that show was going to go as well as it did. I mean, we got a really some great insight, and uh, and I've got a few emails along these lines. Yeah, we gave away some good tips, I think. Yeah, I think so. I am writing to compliment you on show 341 and your consistent ability to make things I wouldn't immediately think of as interesting into an hour worth of interesting conversation. Specifically, my RSS reader told me that the last episode would be about 64-bit development, and I thought maybe I would not listen to it. But I did, and I'm very glad I did. I run Vista 64 on my workstation at home and have driver issues as well, mainly with a few USB peripherals. Also, I am writing some .NET software that uses Manage Direct Show Library to access video sources and couldn't do this in Vista 64 and was going to downgrade to Vista 32 this weekend, but with the discussion about how the NECPU setting works in Visual Studio, I realized I could change that in my project and it ended up working, so now I don't need to reformat my computer to get that project to work. Yeah. That's good news. That yeah, is really save good a reformat. News. Yeah. Towards the end of the show, I was excited to hear that Brian was the person responsible for the Wiimote library, yes. which I have used in the past to control a combat robot that communicated over Bluetooth to a custom microcontroller solution that I built. Keep up the good work. Kevin Yeldon. Kevin. And Kevin Yeldon is at the domain name burntpopcorn.net. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, which is a great domain name. If you go there, you'll find out this dude builds battle bots including these defcon robots which are like mounted guns <laughs> now there's a hobby for yeah, you i wonder why burnt popcorn but it is it is a pretty cool uh name even if i don't understand it very cool thanks for a great email kevin and we had the same reaction to 64-bit stuff that churned up a couple of issues i knew i was having yep absolutely and i only learned about it because um the some of the audio stuff that i have been doing doesn't really work well in 64-bit yeah uh, so I have to compile it for x86. And it's one of those classic Microsoft. They went with the easy solution of any CPU, not realizing people are not going to test properly in 64-bit, and sometimes stuff explodes. Right. All right, Richard, let's uh, introduce Jeff. Jeffrey Richter is co-founder of Wintelect at Wintelect.com, an architecture review, consulting, and training firm. He is the author of several books, including Windows via C, C++ from Microsoft Press in 2007, and CLR via C Sharp from Microsoft Press 2006. Jeffrey is also a contributing editor to MSDN Magazine and has been consulting with Microsoft since 1990. Welcome back, Jeff. Hey, thanks. Great to be back. Yeah, it was years ago you were on the show. Show number 73. Wow. 73. Wow. For me, that was two houses ago. I've moved twice since then. Are, <laughs> are you the longest-running consultant that never actually took a salary job at Microsoft? I think it's true. I think I am. <laughs> I mean, you've seriously been working there 18 years. and yeah. And how many times have you been offered, like, a regular salary? I have gone through the interview cycle at least three, four times. And uh, was offered the job each time in different teams, but, uh, well, I get paid more doing this. <laughs> yeah, basically. And, and I get more freedom and flexibility doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. So you had you sort of got grandfathered in under the sweet deal clause. <laughs> well, I'm not a, an agency employee. I'm a vendor to Microsoft. So right. it's, it's not quite the same thing. Okay. But it's interesting because you do have a desk in an office. Yes. And you work on campus. Yes. Hmm. That's true. But they do that for a bunch of vendors. Like, okay. you know, Intel, Toshiba, they all have offices there. Okay. That's a nice list of companies to put alongside Wintelec, too. I mean, Wintelec has been around. It is an institution. Not a huge company, but been around a long time. Right. Well, we've been around eight years, and uh, we're very proud because we made it through the dot-com bust and the 9-11 tragedies and things like that, and we're still in business today. We've been we've profitable every year, never in debt. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of great authors and uh, consultants have come out of Wintelect. Dino yeah. Esposito, for one. Esposito, sorry, Dino. Yeah. Yeah, well, name a few more. Francesco Bellena, maybe? Yeah. Petzold's with you now, too. Yeah, right, Petzold's with us now. Um, John Robbins and Jeff Proceis are my other two technical co-founders. Didn't Brent Rector come out of there? Yeah, Brent Rector was with us for a while. I, you know, I think one of the best measures you could think of is how many folks on this list of people have now gone over to Microsoft. Uh. Yeah, I don't know if I would look at it that way, but <laughs> you could look at it that way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, some of those people we would have preferred to have keep, and some were glad they went. But <laughs> so, as we learned in your first show, you um, you're responsible for run as the uh, run yes, as utility. That's right. Yeah, we borrowed that term now and made a whole show around it, Run As Radio, which is sort of our IT-oriented show. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, runasradio.com. But um, and you, we also had a conversation, if I can remember, because it was fascinating to me at the time, about all the little uh, select, you know, switch statements in your in in your in Windows to for particular applications to to sort of things that do anomalous stuff. That you have to, you had to in the early days anyway. Hard code for um, that was that was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. What do you do in these days? Uh, these days, well, I do a, still a lot with Wintelect. So I do a bunch of consulting. Um, I'm not working on any book now. Um, although I do think if I were going to write another book, it would be a book on threading and how people could make proper use of threading. I have an outline and a table of contents, but I'm not writing it. <laughs> Okay. Um, I am doing a consulting job at Microsoft now, um, which I don't know how much I could really feel comfortable saying about. Um, if it ships at all, the earliest would be Windows version 8. Okay. I can say that. Wow. If it ships at all, yeah. Um, and basically, it's to try to get more people writing managed code as part of the operating system itself. So at first, mm. it would probably just be Microsoft people who were writing on this kind of modification to the platform. And then it would eventually be exposed for, to the public world so that more people who want to write closer to the metal can do so with managed code. That's wow. probably about all I could say. <laughs> well, wow. And you've always been sort of a guy that on the edge of .NET. I mean, certainly you're .NET savvy, but so much of your writing and your work is more the C++ down at the Windows level, dealing with the API. Like It seems like you switch back and forth from the different spaces that you're working in. Well, I've always been a platform guy. That's how I think of myself. Ah. And whatever is the platform is what I try to embrace. Um, back in the early days, I had done a bunch of DOS work, um, but I hadn't written any books or articles about it. But I used to work, do a lot of work there. Then when 16-bit Windows came out, that was the new platform, so I embraced it. And the way to do it was C and C++. And then when .NET, .NET came out, that seemed like the new platform, so I embraced that. Um, and now some people at Microsoft... Well, you know, it's hard to find people nowadays who know anything about native code at all anymore. Is it true, really? Yeah, I think it is. Wow. I think it's true. I mean, um, I, I got to think I, the OS team, at least, is still well, you know, heavily. Team. You know, C++ is the language of operating systems, right? Of course. But you come out of college. You find people coming right out of college, and you interview them. And one of the big problems Windelect has, we find it very hard to hire people. They come out of college, you interview them, you ask them a bunch of questions, and they have no idea what's happening underneath them. I mean, not a clue. I can remember one story in particular. I was teaching at a conference in Boston, and I did a session on structured exception handling. So this was still probably 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, and it was native code then. And there was a woman in the room who came up to me during the break, and she said she was going for her Ph.D. at MIT in computer science. And I keep using this term, and she doesn't know what it is. What is a CPU register? Oh, my oh, Lord. Wow. Some found it um, to listen to that. <laughs> and wow. that was 10 years ago. I mean, today, I don't know. I say CPU register, and they probably think something else entirely. I have no idea. <laughs> Wow. Well, we were talking about this earlier that the majority of developers I'm meeting today have only ever developed in .NET. It's been eight years. Yeah, it's a long time. I mean, but, you know, on, on one hand, that isn't that a good thing? I mean, I mean, ignorance is never good, but, you know, a s- certain amount of uh, relief is also in that story that uh, these people aren't spending their time down in the low guts of things. I mean, somebody has to, but not everybody has to. Most people don't. Well, and I agree. I think it is a good thing. There's a lot of productive work that can happen at the high levels. Um, I do think that people write better code the more they understand what's going on underneath them. They didn't maybe necessarily have to ever write assembly language to put something into a CU register, right. but to get a sense of what's there. Right. Uh, you know, but, and I also think that benefit. one of the measures of a more senior developer, as you 
evolve as a developer is you start having more awareness of how your code ultimately runs on the machine. That's what it takes to performance tune, what it takes to deal with those sort of hard problems of how do we make this go faster. I think in general, just ideas about memory and how it accumulates and and how it's dealt with and how it's uh, deallocated, um, garbage collection certainly, uh, things that are CPU intensive, just bottlenecks in general. Um, I think a large part of programming is trade-offs between bottlenecks and features. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily. Th- I agree with Jeff. I don't necessarily think you have to know what a CPU register is in order to write good code, manage code. But certainly, having a basic sense of 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 what patterns uh, are, what good patterns are, what anti patterns are in your own code. It's a good idea. Yeah, I think it might become more important over time. I, I have this debate with myself that since CPUs are not getting faster anymore, right? it used to be that we would say, well, who cares about the speed of the program? The CPU is going to get faster next year, and so everything will be fine. But now yeah. that's not happening anymore. And in order to get the additional speed out, because you still want your program to do as much as possible, you either today have to write, to multi-cores in the systems, you have to manually break your program up into parallel tasks, or you either have to hope that some new abstraction layer comes along in the future that kind of does that for you um, in a reasonable way. And it does feel like we're hitting a breaking point now where we are getting many more processors in every machine. I mean, the, the uniprocessor version of Windows has gone away. We just don't expect yeah. to see it anymore. But I also think that we're .NET starting to get old. The decisions that were made in 99 are starting to show their seams. And I, I think specifically around the memory model. You know, in, in 1999, four gigs of RAM was more than you had. Today, that's pretty much par for the course. I think the, the, the high-end dev machine today is a 64-bit machine with eight gigs of memory. Well, we've had this conversation, Jeff, with a number of our guests and even just, you know, sitting around at conferences waiting for our, uh, in the speaker's lounge, th- that, uh, you know, these machines are, are getting more processors, so it's more imperative that um, developers learn how to take advantage of those processors and that the tools for asynchronous programming and concurrency get better. And we, you know, we've even talked to a number of people at Microsoft who are working on this problem and some of the new technologies that are coming out. But uh, then I was talking to Dan Appleman at Dev Connections, who, you know, he's he's one of these guys who's a was a double major computer science and electrical engineering. So, I mean, he understands computers from the from the ground up. And he, he was saying that you know, uh, actually most developers are still going to use one thread, you know, for for general business software. There are very few situations, well, fewer and fewer situations that come up in b- average business software that even gives you an opportunity to improve your performance by using more than one uh, more than one CPU. Yeah, I, I'm, I do tend to agree with his sentiment. Um, I've, I've met with the parallel computing team at Microsoft for building these parallel extensions for .NET, right. and they are specifically focused on the pro- on the compute bound problem where. Applications are doing so much work that if you can parallelize them so that some of it's done on one core, some of it's done on another core, that's how to improve performance. But I do think that that's not the mainstream problem because I do think there's very few applications that are going to benefit from that. I think it's mostly applications that process enormous amounts of data like transcoding audio, transcoding video. That's certainly a place where that stuff is valuable. Absolutely. Those are huge bottleneck problems. I mean, we, we, and we run up against that every day here at the studios. Yes. Okay. So perfect. And then uh, some other image processing, but I agree with Dan. I think a lot of business solutions just don't lend themselves to that. Right. Um, Unless you can do really independent things. You know, we did a, uh, Wintelect has this DevCovery conference that we do a couple times a year. And uh, just last month, I had done it in New York. In New York, we get a lot of um, number crunching people, right, the financial analysis stuff. And they're always trying to run these scenarios of what if the price of this goes up and the price of that goes down and so on. They, uh, If they can run some of those scenarios in parallel and take advantage of the multi-cores, then that would certainly benefit them. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. But you the 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 point is that okay, the PCs aren't really getting faster for business applications just because there is fewer and fewer opportunities to parallelize. I agree. So where does that really uh so where does that really leave us for most for most business software development? I mean, I can understand P-Link. P-Link is great, but what percentage of mainstream business applications have, you know, massive queries that are working with data that's already in memory? Well, it's going to be a small percent. Yeah. But I, I do think small. that we're trying to pull some tools together so that more developers uh, can find ways to parallelize elements of their application. They're not going to parallelize the whole thing, but they're going to find spots where they can say, this would be a place where I'm going to switch languages or I'm going to switch libraries here and try and break these tasks out. Yeah, and ideally, we would have a, a world where the tools discovered that automatically and then just did it, and then programmers didn't have to think about it. But we're a good many years out before we get to that world. Right. But maybe people are just people are running more and more things on the box. You know, if you install Vista today, you have a defragmenting service, you have a content indexing service, you have all kinds of things, antivirus software running on the box. It's all running in the background. And the fact that we're just running multiple separate apps, we do get some benefit of having the additional course. So, uh, um, so maybe you know this is really more important at the operating system level, is what you're saying. Well, it certainly has to start there, and there's a big benefit there that people will just get for free. That they will get for free. And then certain applications will lend themselves to doing parallel pieces of work. And if the programmers architect that properly, then they can improve the performance of that. Yeah. Well, without a doubt, it makes no sense to make a PC today without at least two cores. I still struggle with whether four cores on an average desktop machine or even a developer's desktop machine, which I would consider a, a hard-working machine, if they can keep four cores reasonably busy. Well, you know, if you're running Zune software or something and it's transcoding your music in the background, that other core could be useful. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of those cores is tied up with something like that. I mean, the two-core thing makes sense, that whatever you're working on is getting one of the cores, and all the background stuff is getting the other core. Yeah. It just is a question when you get up to four, whether you've got enough background stuff that three cores can do it, or can you actually find an app that's going to use two at once? Well, Richard, you know, we, we do uh, a lot of audio and audio recording, and I do some video stuff as well. Probably the biggest time waster of all in the video business is rendering. Yeah. And uh, Sony, Ve and I, I say time waster, it's a really CPU-intensive process. I mean, every frame has to be calculated. And, you know, with high-def stuff, it gets even more time-consuming. So Sony Vegas, which is really like a sort of a prosumer kind of uh, video editing suite, it's not on the line of an Avid or Final Cut Pro, but uh, but it is pretty good. Some of the, the the rendering stuff is built in .NET, and they actually have a network rendering service that is a .NET application, and uh, it's reflectable and everything. So I th I thought that was pretty interesting. But they only allow you um, either three cores or three processors or three separate machines. But you can you can as right out of the box parallelize rendering. It's pretty neat. I don't know what any of the other high-end tools do. I know that Avid uh, may be using .NET as well, but I don't know that empirically. That's just what I heard. Well, and the guys who write that have got to be serious multi-threading guys. Like, that is a skill all by itself. Yeah, it is. Um, especially because there's a law of diminishing returns with that stuff. It has You have to have enough... You have to have enough cores or enough machines running to make the uh, to make it fast enough so that you're faster than the the time that it takes to actually ship those bits around through the network from machine to machine and then gather them back together in a single place because that adds overhead. So uh, you know maybe four or five machines it was where you actually start to see some payoff. Yeah, Jeff, you've written a lot about multi-threading. What do you think? Yeah. Well, um, 
Well, I came back from Discovery last week again in New York, and there were a bunch of companies who attended the conference where they were making competing software. Software competes with one another, and the pure differentiator between them was performance. So they were very concerned about how do we leverage all the cores. So if you run the program on a dual core versus a quad core machine, that it's trying to get as twice as fast on a quad core as a dual core, because that way they can get past their competition. So it's... Uh, I, you know, there are certain markets where this is really useful and valuable. I know Microsoft and Google are setting up these massive data centers, and you know, data centers are big and expensive with hardware in them. And if they can get the hardware smaller, the air conditioning costs are smaller, the power costs are less, um, over time that really adds up to millions of dollars for them if the software can take advantage of the multiple cores on the box. So I think there's this high-end world where they are – really have servers that are hit on by billions of people, and they want that to be super, super scalable. And I do think the world is heading that way very heavily, but there's a lot of companies that just write business software that runs on the desktop, and it's it's fine. It won't get much benefit. I just worry that we're getting a, a stratification here, that the market is going to split again into the folks who do that sort of specialized multi-processing development and the folks that are, are doing regular development, and that the tools are going to split as well. I mean, that's the biggest concern, is can the stu- tools stay the same and cover both these markets? Well, there's a lot of people working on that, and they're trying. Uh, but it's it's hard for tools today to know that, what it is your program is actually trying to do, right? That's kind of what they're saying with P-Link or with Link in general, is they're saying that you kind of write declaratively what your query is that you want it to be. And because you've written in a more declarative fashion, they can have these uh, interpretation tools that actually, in Link's case, happen at compile time for the most part to determine what it should really do. And if they have, the tools have this higher level knowledge of what it is you're trying to accomplish, then they can figure out whether it can be parallelized or not. I mean, it's interesting. It deserves people working on the problem. And there'll probably be places where, you know, even today, .NET's not perfect for everybody. And some people have to write some stuff in native code. Sometimes people say, very rarely, but sometimes they'll still go to assembly language. And some, not all tools going to be for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to find scenarios where that is actually the best answer. And and often I find where we select tools based on skill set versus, you know, optimal solution. Well, that happens too. (laughs) (laughs) And you sound so disappointed about it. No, you you brought up some bad memories there, Richard. (laughs) Well, in a way, you know. I mean, that's kind of what Wintelect's all about, though, right, is that we're these, we hope we're this very intelligent group of people that when the company hires what they need most of, and then when they need a little bit extra, they, then there's Wintelect who can come and help them. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. People should always specialize. I used to get questions all the time from people, I'm new to Windows or I'm new to .NET, um, tell me what I should learn. And I would always say to them, you should specialize in something. Learn the GUI really well or learn services really well or learn whatever it is you need really, really well, um, web services maybe, and specialize in a particular area. It used to be a time back in the 16-bit Windows days where I felt like I knew the entire operating system. But today, I mean, it's just not possible. Yeah. Even with somebody who's been doing it for about 20 years, I there's a lot of pieces of Windows that I have no knowledge of now. It's, yeah, it's just bad. gotten so vast. Yeah. Jeff, do you ever get a chance to write your own code just for fun? Or when you go home, do you, is that the last thing you want to do? No, no, I love doing it. Um, I have this app I've been working on for a long time, and just last week I decided to play with the Vista speech recognition engine. Ah, I've done that and, as well. <laughs> That's, I was amazed at how simple it was in managed code to just create a new up a speech recognizer, give it a little tiny grammar, and then it would fire an event whenever I said those words into the microphone. Uh, that was really cool. <laughs> Yeah, that's something that I've been interested in for a long time, too. And Vista hasn't been a part of my life for um, uh, for a long time. And the reason is because my main machine uh, has uh, uh, some audio hardware where the drivers are just a little bit too flaky for me. Um, they come and go. 
the the devices come and go for some reason. Ah, oh, don't have the device now, got to reboot kind of thing. Um, but uh, I recently got a new laptop with Vista 64 on it, and I'm I'm really, really loving it. And the last time I was running it, yes, uh, that was one of the first things that I got. It. I really love the, the speech stuff in Vista. It's very cool. Yeah, it's cool. Very it's, cool. It still doesn't seem quite for... I tried to write a program to take a WAV file. We use Vonage at home for our voice system. And when they sent me a WAV file, and I tried to write a program to, to read the WAV file and convert it to text and then email me the text. And that I couldn't get to work at all. But <laughs> the, the quality of the recognition was abysmal there. But when I, for the little app that I wrote, just speaking into it, uh, it was fun. Um, I also started playing with Microsoft's Live Mesh, yeah, you know, Mesh.com. I haven't seen it yet, but there's been a lot of talk about it recently, yeah. Yeah, and um, that looks like a pretty cool uh, programming environment, too. So I want to write some code against that and synchronize data up in the cloud and all my other machines. Let's, tell uh, us about like Mesh before we move on from that. Tell, tell us just a little bit about what that is. Well, Mesh is, um, well, it's a bunch of servers produced by Microsoft. You can go to Mesh.com, although I think it's a closed beta right now, so you can't just join. Um, and they are creating for you, right now they'll give five gigabytes of storage up in the cloud, and you go to your computers, you add all your computers into the mesh. So I have about five computers at home. They all become part of the mesh. So one thing that you can do is from any computer, actually you can go to an Internet browser on any computer, log into your mesh, and then you can connect to any of your machines. So you can connect to your machines remotely, like remote desktop, but it gets behind NATs and firewalls and things like that. So it's more flexible that way. That sounds a little scary to me, actually. Well, I was at Home Depot the other day, and I really needed to get something on my machine, and it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, and is it, you know, it's an interesting thought that there's still not much software around the idea that people have more than one computing device in their lives. Yes, there's definitely that. And they want to make it so it's also for mobile phone and Macintosh. Right now they don't have that support in there, but they're going to add that support soon. Uh, and then you pick folders on your desktop, on your computers, and you say, well, I want to sync these to folders on the other computer. And then it automatically in the background is just syncing all the files all the time. And it does kind of compete with Microsoft products like Folder Share, if anybody's familiar with that. But right. I have used Folder Share for a long time. Um, and it also competes a little bit with uh, Microsoft SkyDrive, which is folders.live.com, which they right now they give you five gigabytes of storage in the Sky, too. But you have to manually put each file up there and take it down that you want. So it seems like Mesh is, has those two technologies integrated in, plus remote desktop. Uh, but it's also a platform. It's a synchronization platform. And so you could imagine applications running where they know about the Mesh, and people could save their documents up to the mesh, and then there's collaboration that happens, so people can be working on the same document at different times on their machines, or at the same time on different machines, and it's merging all the changes in together. And that that's the API me. that I want to play with that I haven't had a chance to yet. It just scares me a little bit to think that um, we could be unleashing this on unsuspecting people who don't know how to secure their data. Well... That's possible, but you know, all the data is HTTPS up and back from this from the cloud and the clients, and you I do know. have to Just log in. To those collaboration points. I, I probably should before I say anything. I should probably go check it out. Well, but, and uh, it's not shipping yet. Right. <laughs> I think one of the restrictions that were on Mesh uh, that I saw in the tech preview was that it's been held only in the U.S. And one of the reasons is that the crypto on it is pretty tight. And there are crypto export restrictions that are impacting it. So they can't use it outside the U.S. yet. Oh, I hadn't heard that, but I believe it. That makes sense. Well, I mean, exactly to Carl's point that this thing offers a huge opportunity for exploitation. So totally. it needs to be pretty tight. And uh, apparently it's tight enough that it's tripping off export laws. All right, shall we change gears? Because I want to go real geeky, something we were talking about before the show, uh, which I really think leads, you know, we started talking about multiprocessor and, uh, and that this was really a fundamental change in computers that I don't think most people appreciate how important that is. That stop, we no longer make a processor faster, now we're making more of them. And there are other architectural changes coming as a consequence of that, and one of them is NUMA. 
Yeah, Numa? actually, Numa, N-U-M-A, um, has been around for many years. It's not that new. Uh, Windows has had some support for it in the past, and much more support for it has been added in Windows Vista and Server 2008. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, NUMA stands for Non-Uniform Memory Access. And just like today they put multiple CPU cores on a single chip, what they do with NUMA is they put multiple motherboards in a single chassis. Oh! Yeah. And so the the CPUs access the RAM on that on their own motherboard very quickly. The CPUs can access RAM on another board, but that's much more slowly, and that's why it's called non-uniform memory access. Hey, this is Carl. I just need to take a minute to tell you about the latest offerings from our friends at Telerik. As you probably know, they've recently released their huge pack of web controls built on top of ASP.NET AJAX, That'll help you build impossibly fast and interactive applications in no time. But you've just got to check out their Windows Form stuff. It looks just like WPF. How about a carousel component in Windows Forms? How about a super powerful grid view control and 32 other desktop components with dazzling WPF-like features? In reporting, Telerik has this new design surface that simulates graph paper. And it's got so many advanced page layout capabilities, it looks more like graphic design software. So visit www.telerik.com and download a free trial. And make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Now, I mean, today there are already, in just a regular motherboard and regular CPU, a number of levels of memory. We talk about L1 cache and L2 cache, and in some cases even L3 cache, and then you get into main memory. Well, yeah. So you could kind of think of the main memory on your motherboard as being like L4 and the memory on the other motherboard being like L5. Wow. So more than just putting mother, multiple motherboards in the same chassis, these motherboards are interconnected in, in yeah. an underlying way, but still representing a slower memory access than their native process. So tell me what kind of yeah. application scenario this works best for. Well, it's really for big servers. Um, where you set them up in a data center, you have these big computers with lots of NUMA motherboards in them. But I understand that AMD, and I don't understand this um, great, but AMD is moving to an all-NUMA architecture is what I've heard. So it might even be that on a single motherboard, some CPU hits this bank of RAM faster than this other CPU, faster than that same CPU hits this other bank of RAM. But it might all be on one motherboard. I don't know all the details about that. But this is getting into this issue that processors are still fast enough that they're constantly starved for memory. I mean, that's really the stumbling block we've got here is that we can put more and more cores on the motherboard, but they never can access RAM efficiently enough because there's not enough RAM pipelines. So if you create more RAM pipelines, then you have sort of first class and second class citizen RAM. Some processes have closer relationship with one chunk of RAM and a lesser relationship with another chunk of RAM, whether it's multiple motherboards or not. Well, yes. So and do you think, then, would an application have control over what, what motherboard's RAM they access a particular structure on? Well, definitely in, that's what the new APIs, a bunch of new APIs in Vista and Server 2008 let a programmer do in native code. There's a new function like virtual alloc ex numa, in Vista, introduced in Vista, where the last parameter is which motherboard you want to do the memory allocation from. Now, I would imagine that a future version of the, of the common language runtime would probably also give programmers some kind of function they could call where they say, hey, for the ongoing future, these news that I do, those news should be out, uh, these objects should be allocated on this particular motherboard or bank of RAM. And you could see a sort of master process here then, doling out work to multiple processor sets by pushing across that NUMA barrier over to those other sets and saying, here's an object for you, and here's an object for you, and here's an object for you. Now go. Well, I think it's unlikely. Are you saying that a program would, a thread, would new up objects on another motherboard for another process? That's I what think I'm that's thinking. unlikely. I think what's more likely is the the code would say, well, here's what I'm going to use. And and 
I'm going to run on this motherboard, so let me make sure that the objects that I'm manipulating are on this motherboard's RAM so that it's very close to me. Right. I mean, I always wanted, I, I mean, the goal here would always be to have a processor running against the memory that's closest to it for a given task. Yeah. But I might have to go up to other memory to go get that object and bring it local. So the, and I'm, purely this is then a debate of am I pushing that or am I pulling that? Well, you're kind of saying it allocates on one bank of memory and then it moves. I think we would want to avoid that movement. I guess I'm still thinking of a very much a master process, that there's something that's out there doling work out. Yeah, I, my gut tells me that would not be the best architecture to have. But I've not done a lot of work with NUMA myself. So normally I would think a program would start up and would say, well, here's a client request that's coming in, and the thread that's going to process that client request is running on this particular motherboard. So let me make sure that the memory I need to process that request is with me. Right. Not so much a master-slave kind of thing, but I'm running now. Here's what I need. I want it close to me kind of scenario. And I'm, I'm just thinking about how this would manifest itself in a .NET world. Well, there might be, uh, probably on a per-thread basis, uh, some kind of property that says when this thread calls new, this is the bank of RAM that I want it in. And there would probably be one garbage collected heap per, uh, per bank of RAM or RAM that's on a motherboard. And then after you've made that property, set that property, any news that the thread makes would go and happen from that bank of RAM. So now that RAM would be close to you. And then the next thing you would want to do is you would want to set thread affinity, processor affinity for the thread. Um, which is a feature that's been in Windows for a long time. And a lot of times people ask me, when would you ever want to set the processor affinity? Because if I, right now, Windows will let a thread run on any CPU in the box. Right. But if you affinitize it, then you're saying to Windows, this thread can only run on a subset of the CPUs. And why would you ever want to do that? Because by definition, it has to reduce your scalability. Well, the main reason why people are interested in that is because if they know the memory is allocated on bank zero of the RAM, then you want to keep that thread on that on CPU zero or CPU one, if they're both on the same motherboard as the bank of RAM. That way, that thread is always touching the memory, and they're right next to each other. Or they're always on the same motherboard. So usually, setting affinity is interesting in that case. I've had to set affinity on some hyperthreading machines where applications that were thread sensitive, uh, you know, the hyperthreading mechanism was screwing up. So we had to sort of stick it to one. One core, or one. Well, actually, I mean, it was one core. The, yeah, that's just because there was a bug in the program then, where they didn't do the thread synchronization correctly. Probably that could be. But you know, to your original point there, that thread affinity made no sense as long as all processors were equal citizens. In the hyperthreading case, we had a pseudo second processor that was sort of crippled and and caused problems, and in some apps that really caused problems, and you had to use thread affinity to protect yourself from it. And in this case. We've got even more processors, and now they, they, based on where stuff is written into memory, there are first-class and second-class citizen processors. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. But, you know, it's interesting. Isn't it better to just have a whole bunch of processors in one single chunk of RAM? Like, 16 processors, 64 gigs of RAM, go. Sure. And wouldn't it be better to have one processor that was right at light speed rather than slow speed, but there's these are physical devices in a physical world, and we have physical limitations as to what the hardware manufacturers are able to build for us. Right. So, you know, the big problem with why CPUs don't get faster is because of all the heat that they generate, and then you have to cool the machine. It's really a heating issue. Yeah. Mm. Well, and, it's in, and like I said, it's a speed of light issue that you can only go so far, too. Wouldn't it be better, instead of the 16 processors, 64 gigs of RAM, that we have four sets of four processors with eight gigs of RAM each, or 16 gigs of RAM each, and that smaller chunk of RAM is twice as fast as that bigger chunk of RAM? But now the complexity of the programming gets a lot more complicated. We have to be able to be thread infinite and be sure of where we're writing stuff in memory. Yeah, for... For some very small set of applications where that can be important, where you want to get every bit of performance possible out of the machine, you would care about that stuff. 
for a lot of business, they do run fast enough. I, I want to agree with Dan Appleman <laughs> that this is not for everybody. But, you know, for companies like Microsoft and Google that are kind of building their own operating systems to run their data centers and the cost, that because of the scale, costs add up very quickly. Trying to write software that really leverages this stuff is very important to them. Adds up to millions, if not more, of dollars. Well, and I'm very sensitive to garbage collecting because I'm scaling websites all the time these days. And when a GC runs under load, it's largely a disaster. You know, all requests queue up and so forth. If I could have an architecture where I could have multiple GCs available and hopefully they don't run at the same time, I might be able to keep things running well even during a GC. Well, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that people don't take advantage of now. I would right. say that most of the servers out there are written to to a synchronous programming model right. where the you know, the incoming request comes in, a thread pool thread wakes up, it goes and makes some synchronous request out to a database. So now that thread can't do anything else until the database comes and responds. Meanwhile, if more client requests are coming in, some thread wants to go and process them, so the thread pool starts creating more threads in order to handle the incoming workload. So the next thing you know, your program is full of all these threads, but almost all of them are blocked waiting for the database to come back. Waiting and for some other out-of-process call. Yeah, some other out-of-process call. And uh, and so you end up with this huge overhead because every thread allocates a megabyte of memory at least, actually more than that. Uh, and so, in fact, I run a test once where in a 32-bit process, you can't get more than 1,400 threads in a process um, because you run out of virtual address space because of all the thread stacks. Right. So that means that a application cannot possibly handle more than 1,400 requests concurrently because of that, if it's written in a synchronous fashion. Uh, And that can really hurt scalability. If people would just take their existing servers and write them to an asynchronous programming model instead, which .NET has built in with its begin and end patterns of stuff, like begin read and end read and begin write and end write, then threads wouldn't block. You would end up having far fewer threads. You can get your scalability significantly higher. The programmers have been doing the wrong thing for a long time, I guess, is what I've been saying. And we have to undo that before we can get them to now care about NUMA. There's no way they'll care about NUMA today if the rest of the architecture of the program is so poorly done. So, Jeff, what I hear you saying is that right now we're programming the wrong ways to really take advantage of NUMA architectures, that we're going to have to get into doing more asynchronous programming to actually naturally take advantage of these NUMA architectures as they come out. Well, I'm saying that there's lower hanging fruit and that people need to understand, you need to understand threading better now. I mean, that's a thing that pretty much faces us every day. Computers are today multi-core. And so if people would start taking advantage of the multiple cores, that's a really big start towards getting their performance up and getting their resource consumption down. Now, once we get to that, the next thing, if you really want to get additional performance out of your program, would then be to focus on NUMA. And, and But you're running on big machines now. So I don't know how many applications are really doing that. If you just have a server set up in your house somewhere and you're serving off some data or maybe one or two servers in your company serving up some data, then it's not a big deal. But if you are, you know, a Google or a Microsoft with lots and lots of servers and you really want to get the economies of scale, then worrying about NUMA can be important there. But it sounds to me like if AMD is doing everything NUMA, it's not going to be long before the mid-range server is a NUMA architecture. Well, that's Mm, true. In fact, that's probably the case now, but uh, to some degree. Again, I don't know all the details about AMD, but I think AMD is even making their desktop machines be NUMA. Right. Really? Um, And I need to, yes. I think everything that AMD now produces is a NUMA machine. But I have to, I have to double check all that to understand the details of exactly what that means. But, and, but I could see this as a, as a hardware guy who's poking around on the latest motherboards all the time. As soon as you see a board that actually has two physical processor slots, it has two separate RAM banks. So they're already, and I got to think that that's a natural opportunity to do NUMA architectures, that they're already recognizing that most folks have only, have motherboards that only have a single processor slot that could have as many as four cores in it and one bank of RAM. But it's now that we're starting to get machines 
uh, these new generation machines that are not only multi-core, but also multi-processor, we're going to well, get multiple RAM banks, and NUMA architecture is going to show up. You said NUMA was well, yeah. multiple motherboards, though. I mean, that, that alters the form factor of the, of the box itself, doesn't it? Well, I did say that because that's the way it initiated, but I believe it's going into a pattern now where on a single motherboard, you could have multiple chips, and some bank of RAM is close to that core, and some other bank of RAM is close to a different core, right. but it's all on the single motherboard now. I see. But each is going to have their own DMA structures to access their RAM, and then there's going to be a bridge between them. Yes. And that's going to be a lower-performing bridge to access RAM across those things. Yeah, so that's right. This is going to be a new generation stuff. It's not going to be long before we start seeing these machines more and more. And it's important to start thinking in terms of how are you going to take advantage of this? We're going to buy these new machines and we're not going to get the performance advantages we want because we're not treating this stuff properly. Well, it sounds, it sounds like uh, you guys are both framing this as um, take advantage of this now in your applications where, you know, most, most listeners are, our, our business software developers and, you know, they're scrambling trying to think of where they could parallelize. But the reality is most applications don't need to. So, I mean, I got to I got to think that if you need to parallelize, you are doing it. You know, I mean, if your application needs it, that's those are the guys who should be thinking about it. And chances are they probably already are. No, I agree with you. I, I think that it's good for developers to understand the direction that hardware is going in because it does impact the architecture of your software. Well, that's it, right? And, it influences the architecture. If you can architect with an eye towards, is there a way that we can parallelize to gain performance? That's that's where the decision has to be made. If you already have an application and uh, it's a line of business application and you're thinking, how can I take advantage of this? You'll probably sit around and scratch your head for a long time. I agree. And in .NET, the common language runtime today does not take advantage of NUMA. And if you have all your code written in .NET, it's going to be very difficult to, to well, you can't take advantage of NUMA. I mean, even P-invoking out, if you are, know you're running on Vista or Server 2008 to these new APIs, is not really going to help you in .NET. But I've got to think that Microsoft is going to move towards additional features in the .NET framework that are going to take advantage of NUMA and that they're going to show up in the form of extensions to the parallel features or extensions to asynchronous features. Well, I agree that Microsoft, there's a lot of server-side software being written in ASP.NET. And Microsoft's own live properties and MSN properties, they a lot of those are written in ASP.NET, and they want to get massive scaling on those. And those people who wrote that code, they want to be able to get as much power as possible out of the hardware they're on. New hardware is NUMA hardware. And it would be best if the Common Language Runtime team put extensions into the CLR to, to allow the people to create objects that are on a particular bank of RAM. Seems to me that it wouldn't be extensions. It would be a rewrite. I don't know if it's a rewrite. I mean, it basically comes with a garbage collector. The rest of the CLR, the the DLL loader, the code access security system, all of those things are fine as is. The jitter is all fine as is. So, probably. (laughs) Uh, So the garbage collector, (laughs) yeah, I don't want to... The whole memory model, really. Well, NUMA is non-uniform memory access. Yeah, so it's about memory. And I think what would happen, you know, I'm designing this in my head on the spot. No, I sure. I have given it that much thought. But my, my thought is that there would be some property that you could set on a thread to say what bank of RAM new objects would be allocated from. And then when you new up object A and new, new up your file stream, new up your string, new up your string builder, whatever, that it will go and allocate it from that particular bank of RAM then you probably want to affinitize your thread to a CPU. Well, .NET has already supported that for a long time. Right. On the processor thread class, there's a thread affinity property, and they'll probably move it to the thread class. I don't think it's on the thread class now, but they would probably add it to the thread class just for convenience sake to say on which CPUs do you want this to run on. And then they would have to add some additional APIs where you could ask, well, how many motherboard, how many banks of RAM are in the computer? How many CPUs are on the computer? Which CPUs are associated with which banks of RAM? Windows added that function already, so native programmers can get that information. It's called Get Logical Processor Information, if any of your listeners want to look it up. And 
Um, I actually wrote managed wrappers to call into that, so I could query all of that from managed code. Then once you have that, you could then start you know, tweaking your program a little bit to say, hey, for this client request, it's going to run on this thread. I want all the objects to allocate off of this bank of RAM, and this thread's going to run on this CPU, so the performance is really fast. Now, in some respects, yeah. I'm wondering if this the .NET libraries could take care of this themselves. The moment I'm starting to create variables, it's writing it into a chunk of memory, and then it would automatically mark that thread as affinitized to that uh, chunk of memory, uh, so they, you know, they would all be associated just by the, by the nature of the, my, me using my code. I don't think I'd have to do much to make that happen. No, I think, I disagree. I think that, especially where threading is concerned, the, the size of the data structures that you're using, the processor intensity of, of what has to happen, there's always going to be, uh, it's always going to require some sort of programmer to, to say this goes here on that, on CPU and that goes on that CPU. I, I sort of, I, I sort of disagree with that. Well, so I agree with Carl, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Richard. Um, that Well, I don't know about always. So that I might disagree with, and we can talk about that in just a moment. But at least for the foreseeable future, the, the, the tools, the runtime, the languages, it's too hard for them to know what objects are used together and what the ultimate goal is. Now, in the future, there's a lot of people who are working on more declarative programming models that maybe we won't write in C-sharp or VB the next time around, right? It was Win32 and COM for a long time. Then we switched to .NET and C-sharp. The next thing might be some new runtime that's all metadata-driven, or some people refer to it as intentional programming, where you are explaining your intention of what you want the program to do. Then once we have tools that can better understand the intention uh, then those tools can say, well, the intention of this is to go and do processing for a particular client request. It's going to need these objects in order to do that work. So let me put these objects on this bank of RAM, and I will put the threads that manipulate those objects on these cores, and now the tools can probably go and do that when they produce the code for you and execute. But that's you know, long-term fusion thinking, but there are a lot of people who are working on that. And the metadata in .NET today was a first step towards getting us there. It, it's, yeah, I'm, I think folks want to think that this stuff's going to go into the plumbing, but maybe some of it just can't. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting problem. But, uh, the tools need to know better what it is you're trying absolutely. to accomplish, I think. You know, we sort of just compared parallel programming and asynchronous programming to the same thing, but they're, they're quite different to each other, aren't they? Like, asynchronous program is purely about let that thread be freed up to do something else while I'm waiting versus parallel program where I want two pieces yes. to execute at the same time. Yes. I yeah. agree with that. So, I, I mean, one is a much more complicated process than the other, but I'm wondering if both would be able to take advantage. It certainly makes sense to me that parallel program would take advantage of the NUMA architectures substantially. I'm wondering if the asynchronous approach is going to do the same thing. Well, I almost feel like you're drawing too close a relationship between these things. One is about memory, and the other is about right. threads. And it is the threads that are accessing the memory. And, you know, a single thread might need to go and look up some data that's on memory bank one. So maybe you want to affinitize the thread to the CPU that touches memory bank one. Then after it gets that, then maybe the thread needs to go touch memory that's on memory bank 20. So you want to affinitize it to a different CPU so it's running on that CPU to go and touch that memory thereafter. Yeah, and this is where most programmers go, you know what, screw it, I'm going yes, to right. screw you guys. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or I can spend another $1,000, buy another piece of hardware, and then <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> right. Well, it's true. It's true. I mean, it's interesting to see, and there are a class of people who really care about this stuff, but they are definitely in the minority. Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly fascinating to me, but I've also, you know, I'm making a callback to the beginning of the show here. Folks who've only ever lived in a .NET world just aren't aware of the issues around memory management, that that it's always been this way. We've always had a garbage collector, and it it seems to me that as you get to the extremes, and I think more folks are getting here, we're utilizing more memory and bigger machines and scaling our apps bigger. They're finding out the, the sort of stress points of the way .NET behaves. Well, I've always been in love with the technology. So whenever they produce something new, I seem to care about it no matter what. 
<laughs> I don't know if I'll use it or not, but I'll at least read something about it. I'll probably write a couple lines of code just to see it, and then I'll say, okay, I understand that good enough that I could fake my way through a call like this one. <laughs> and then then I'll be it. Well, and there's, I mean, are you running into applications where this is architecture would really have a huge benefit? Well, I work a lot at Microsoft, and at Microsoft I do, I meet with a bunch of teams, like the Mesh team and SkyDrive team and whatever, and they're really trying to build highly scalable servers. And these people certainly care about NUMA. There's no question. Um, the ASP right now doesn't support it, so they have to rework the runtime. But some of the web services are still written in native code, so they can do this. You know, Hotmail is... Microsoft, the three main properties that Microsoft has are that are hit heavily are Hotmail, Instant Messenger, and right. Search. They're the three really hot live services. And they're always worried about scaling. I mean, one of the reasons why Mesh is a closed beta right now is because they know they can't scale. If they opened it all up, they know that they couldn't support all of the people that are hitting the server. So they're very concerned about how do we get the smallest number of computers to process these millions of concurrent clients. And how do we solve that problem? And somebody says, well, there's NUMA. They say, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe we should take a look at NUMA. Right. And and, and interesting that it would just be that, that sort of scenario of, of, well, of course, I'm a web guy. So I keep thinking, is the 1U pizza box web server dead in this scenario? That we're now getting into architecture. You know, the reason we had pizza boxes in the first place was that you could only do so much ASP.NET on a given box. My best tune apps, I got about a thousand requests per second out of one 1U box. I just couldn't get more because you run out of threads and you just run out and you run out of memory. So it was easier to just buy more boxes. Right. But with these architectures, now it seems like I could be going to a big box that runs huge numbers of requests. Well, actually, you're still limited to the number because even on a huge box, if you're running a 32-bit Windows system, you can't get more than 1,467 threads right. inside that app. Um, wow. So then you'd have to create multiple processes. So then you could get 1,467 in each process. Hey, Sparky, right. come here. That's too many threads. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then, right, you're just putting a lot of threads in the system, but they're yeah. actually all blocked waiting for something they to are, happen. definitely. Well, and, and if you're still running 32-bit, you're torturing yourself unnecessarily. Like it's well, it's time true. to switch. The hardware right. has been 64-bit capable for a long time. Yes. So that does um, open things up a lot. But still, you don't want to create all these threads to block. So, but that brings us back to asynchronous programming is definitely what people should be doing. Using fewer threads. Yes, that lets them use fewer threads, and they're also wasting less memory, and that will increase the scalability of their program significantly, really significantly. And then... Then, if they need even more, then they can start looking at NUMA as another thing they can do. Well, and it's nice to know there's somewhere to go from here. I mean, it's an interesting thought that these, like I said, NUMA's been around for a long time, but mostly in fairly specialized areas. This sounds like it's coming to a mid-tier server near you in the next few years. Well, yeah, the architecture will definitely be there, and whether you take advantage of it or not, it's up to you. Again, I'm thinking really big data centers is where this really comes in interesting. Yeah. You know, for the guy who's running his pizza shop and has his, you can place an order over the net, it's probably not a big deal. And, and I'm, you know what? I think this is closer to the mid-tier, the regular machines than we think. I, I think I'm going to have to build a dev box using this architecture, and I'm pretty sure I already own one of these motherboards. I just didn't realize what that meant. So I'm going to have to go back and read over the specs on this this AMD board I've got with the two process, two physical processes and two banks of RAM, and I bet it's actually a NUMA architectured machine. It very likely is. Well, I think we're just about at the end of the show. Jeff, do you have any uh, last-minute words of uh, wisdom or even a plug or just a thought to leave us with? Well, let's see. Um... <laughs> Don't take any wooden nickels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, it's a big world out there, and <laughs> uh, not not everything is for everybody. So I don't think you should just go out and start embracing NUMA. Uh, and it's interesting to read about it. So I guess here, if I had to pick something, it would be that in my experience, a lot of the programmers I run in today, they have no idea of what's happening underneath them. 
They use these high-level abstraction layers, and when you use that, you accept it at face value for all bugs it has. You accept it at face value for all its memory consumption. You accept it at face value for all its performance ramifications. And understanding what's happening underneath the system, not that you ever had to program to it, but knowing what a CPU register is, knowing what a bank of RAM is, knowing some CPU instructions, all of that helps you and affects your architecture so you can build something better. And so I'd encourage people to read more about what's going on underneath the covers. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff. Good to talk to you again. Hey, good to talk to you guys, too. Thanks for having me. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Bye-bye, all. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 